0: right well I begin back in the 17th century when there was an emperor in Prussia by the name of Frederick the fifth and he had a philosopher at court with whom he had many discussions and one day Frederick the fifth of Prussia said to Heidegger the philosopher give me one proof of the existence of God and Heidegger said your majesty The Jews. And considering that was long before there was any sign of any return to this land and when they were scattered among the nations and in many cases looked as if they would die out, it was quite an amazing answer. But the fact is that the existence of the Jews is a proof of the existence of their God. It is as simple as that. The Jew has been called the eternal Jew, but that's only because his God is an eternal God. There should never have been a nation of Israel. Humanly speaking, their history is impossible. They began with an old man of 90. That old man left a comfortable brick house and lived in a tent for the rest of his life. I don't know many old age pensioners who would do that. And he set off with a wife who'd been totally unable to produce any children for him. And so it looked as if the family line would come to a dead end anyway. And they set off for this land, which in those days was not a very fertile land. And he would face more than one time of famine when there would be no food for him. And he had to go down to the breadbasket of Egypt to get something to eat. That's how it all began. With the old man, his son, and his grandson. And yet God linked his name with the names of those three men forever. And the God we praise tonight is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Isn't that amazing? Well, they did go down to Egypt for food eventually and uh, one of Jacob's sons was sold into slavery and thrown into prison and became prime minister. I mean, that, that, that is an impossible story. Down there in Egypt, though Joseph was prime minister, it wasn't long before all the Jews were slaves. By that time, the descendants of the old man Abraham were in slavery. They had no time of their own. They worked seven days a week nonstop from sunrise to sunset. They had no money, they had no freedom, they had nothing. They were slaves. And yet they increased in number. And now came the first attempt at genocide of this people when the Pharaoh commanded that every boy must be slaughtered, thrown to the crocodiles in the Nile. But the Nile saved one boy, Moshe, whom his mother was desperate to keep alive and God's deliverer had been born. They should never have got out of Egypt. It's impossible. The Egyptians from Suez down to the Red Sea from Cairo rather, down to Suez, had a line of forts to guard the eastern border of their country and to keep slaves in as well as enemies out. There was no way those hundreds of thousands of slaves could get out of Egypt. It was humanly impossible. And of course, when they finally made a bid for freedom, they went totally the wrong direction. They went south until they were trapped between the sea and the Saharan desert, and behind them the chariots of the biggest army in the then known world, trapped. They should never have escaped, but they did, and it was the Egyptian army with all its horses and chariots that didn't escape. They were then forty years in desert without food or water. And in 1973, the Egyptian army, within three days, was dying in the Sinai Peninsula. And Israel took pity and released them. In a place where the Egyptian army of today could not survive three days, they survived forty years. They should never have got into this land. They sent spies ahead to try and suss out the situation. The spies came back, a dozen of them, but ten of them said, we'll never get in there. We've seen their cities and their city walls reach the sky. And inside are people who are far bigger than we are. They're a taller race. They're giants. We'll never get in. But two of them said, we're going in on God's shoulders, so we'll be bigger than them. And those were the only two who got in. They should never have been able to take this place. Jericho was the first city and an impossible city to take, but they took it. This is not an easy place to live by nature and by human nature as well. It's a very precarious country. It's a narrow corridor, as you know, between the Mediterranean and the desert. And on that side, the desert side, there is a long ridge of black basalt rock, which is so sharp and so hard that a camel cannot walk on it. And in this narrow corridor, which links Africa to Europe to Europe and to Asia, it's just a little narrow strip of land. And of course, because of that, it's the corridor between the rest of the world. Everybody traveling from one continent to another has to come through here. But right down the eastern shore of the Mediterranean is a mountain range, and there's only one gap in it. And the gap is a 12-mile across plain called the Plain of Yezrael or the Plain of Esdraelon, and that's the only way through. Every army that has marched through this area has gone through that gap. It's the crossroads of the world. The road from Asia to Africa goes through that gap. And the road from Arabia to Europe goes through that gap. And the crossroads is at a little hill called Megiddo, or in Hebrew, har And uh, Alexander the Great came through there. Napoleon came through there. Because it's the gap. And it links all the then known world. This was before America was discovered. The whole known world had to pass through here. And somebody has said if you insist on living at a crossroads you'll get run over, which is why this land has been run over, invaded so many times. Little Israel was surrounded by hostile neighbours. On every side there were Moabites and Midianites and every other parasites you can imagine. And they were hostile neighbours and they invaded this territory regularly. They came to get animals and crops, or they just came to set crops on fire. But it's a very hard place for them to live. And beyond the immediate hostile neighbours were two world superpowers. And the superpowers were based on big rivers because big rivers had a constant supply of water. And therefore could bring fertility. And with the Nile on one side and the Tigris and Euphrates on the other, there were two world superpowers constantly threatening each other. And when they attacked each other they had to come through here. So on the one hand was the Egyptian superpower and on the other hand was the Assyrian superpower and later the Babylonian superpower. And then this little nation had civil war which usually wipes out a nation if it's pursued far enough. And they split into ten tribes in the north and two in the south at war with each other. And then after the civil war, the Assyrian superpower came and ten tribes disappeared. Only two left, Judah and little Benjamin. And they didn't last much longer and then the Babylonians came and they were gone too. They should never have survived. A few of them came back 70 years later, only a few in comparison to the number who went. We tend to think they all came back from the exile. They did nothing of the kind. A few thousand came back and managed to begin to rebuild this city, though the temple they managed to erect was tiny compared with Solomon's. But they got it built and Nehemiah got the walls up again, still surrounded by hostile enemies and neighbours. And they never got their political freedom back. They were occupied by Syrians, then Egyptians, then Greeks, then Romans. And those who occupied them, some of them tried to obliterate Jewish identity and culture. One of the worst was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, who came to this city for three and a half years, during which he did his best to impose Greek culture here. He built stadium for sports and of course Greek sport was always in the nude, as I'm sure you know from old Greek pictures. And that was an affront to the Jewish decency. And he sacrificed pigs on the altar of the temple and filled the vestures of the temple with prostitutes. He did his best. He was the worst. And he didn't try and kill the Jews, he tried to kill Jewish culture and identity. And he is a foretaste of the Antichrist, who will do the same thing in three and a half years right here. And then with the Romans, they crucified thousands of people, not one. You've only heard of one maybe, but there were thousands. And it was so painful an occupation that they finally decided to revolt and try and throw the Romans off. Jesus foresaw that happening and he said as he made his way to the cross, he said, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. What's coming on you? And he said a thing that I've never heard any preacher quote. As he carried the cross, he said, If they do these things when the wood is green, what will they do when it's dry? That's a carpenter talking. Green wood you don't cut, but dry wood you do. And as he sees the hammer and the nails being carried in front of him, and carrying the wooden beam, the carpenter says that, and what he means is, I'm green wood, and yet they're cutting me down. But when you become ripe wood, dry wood, what will they do to you? And they did. And in seventy this city was destroyed. The temple pulled down stone by stone, and you can go and see the stones that were thrown down. Now, at the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, you see the huge blocks on the very street on which Jesus walked and the blocks thrown down have cracked the street. Have you seen that? Well, it's all true. And Jerusalem was no more and the temple was no more. But they still lived on and they tried a second time. And a false prophet gave a false messiah to them, Bar Kokhba and in 135 AD they made a second and final attempt to throw off the Roman yoke but they didn't succeed. They were wiped out. You've been to Masada, some of you I'm sure. And this city had a perimeter put around it beyond which no Jew could come into the city and it was renamed Aeolia Capitolina and the land was renamed Palestinia. That word postdates Jesus. And yet there are preachers in my country in England, prominent preachers. The leading evangelical Bible teacher of England is now telling my country that Jesus was a Palestinian. Doesn't he know his history? But that was the end. A few Jews managed to survive in places like Safed, a city set on a hill, but that was the end. They should never have reappeared. They should never have kept their identity and many of them didn't. They were scattered over the whole world and many of them assimilated and lost their identity. Others kept their identity by holding on to just three things – circumcision, the Sabbath and a kosher diet. And that way they hung on to their identity, but they lost their language. They lost so many other things. But they kept alive a hope that one day they'd be back here next year in Jerusalem. And here they are against every possible human explanation, considering that the Crusades ostensibly coming here to release holy sites from the Muslim killed every Jew on the way, starting in France and Germany. And the slaughter of Jews by the Christian church is one of the blots on our reputation. Then in Spain, the Inquisition forced Jews either to be tortured to death or to convert to Christianity under pressure. 1492, the very year that Christopher Columbus discovers America, Spain gets rid of the last Jew. Interesting because the New World became a refuge for so many Jews. So it's gone on. And there have been so many attempts, Russian pogroms, the Jews of Poland were persecuted and as you know in our lifetime, my lifetime, it came to a head with a determined attempt to wipe the Jewish people from the face of the earth. And it succeeded with a third of them, six million, including one and a half million children. Well, you are probably familiar with all of this. I just want to underline there is no possible human explanation for the fact that Israel is back on the map and back in their land after all that, that there is still an Israel, is quite incredible. And you cannot find a natural explanation for it. They can't find a natural explanation for it themselves because once a year they celebrate Passover, that their origin as a nation began with a miracle. It's not just a miracle that they've survived. It is a series of miracles all the way through. In other words, there is only a supernatural explanation for the survival of the Jewish people. And I remember in 1967, the Six-Day War, I was riding in a jeep with uh, an Israeli major in the army on the Golan Heights. We had to watch where we walked. There was live ammunition everywhere on the ground. There were huge Russian gun emplacements with the guns pointing down from the top of the Galan Heights to the kibbutzim below. And yet when I asked the Major, how did you get up here? He didn't say a word, he just pointed to the sky. He knew his history. <laughs> there is no way They could have ever survived these 3,000 years and more, 4,000 years, unless the God of Israel exists, and unless he intervened in their history again and again and again. That's why Heidegger said to Frederick, your majesty the Jews, that's the proof of the existence of God, but only of the existence of the God of Israel. It doesn't prove any other God. Actually, no other God exists. The others are all figments of human imagination. But the God of Israel exists, and that is why Israel exists. And I predict now that on the last day of history, Israel will still be there. Jesus promised it. He said heaven and earth may pass away, but he said this race will never pass away, and it hasn't. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.